I'm William Jess Laird. This is Image Culture. This week, I'm sharing a conversation with Dan Tolley, editor-in-chief of A Magazine. In case you're not familiar, A Magazine is unique in the landscape of fashion publications. The project was started in 2004 with the concept that each issue would be guest curated by a fashion designer who would be given free reign over the content of the magazine. In their own words, each issue celebrates a designer's ethos, their people, passions, stories, emotions, fascinations, spontaneity, and authenticity. The magazine presents this amazing opportunity for designers to get beyond fashion and clothing and show the larger world where these things are coming from. We get to understand the unique point of view of each designer who curates an issue. And as you get to the final pages, you realize that you've had a truly intimate experience. I'm talking to Dan on the occasion of the release of A Magazine's 21st issue, curated by Lucy and Luke Meyer, who are the creative directors of fashion house Jill Sonder. In our conversation, Dan and I talk about his nearly 10-year history with the magazine, how he became editor-in-chief when he was just 20 years old, and the process behind the scenes of working with the designers. Over the years, he's really developed uh, an amazing perspective on how visual culture influences fashion design. A Magazine has a great website where you can get a peek into iconic past issues with designers such as Martin Margiela, Tom Brown, Yoji Yamamoto, Simone Rocha, Jun Takahashi, and many, many more. You can find this amazing archive at amagazinecuratedby.com or on Instagram at amagazinecuratedby. Here I am with editor Dan Tolley. We're talking at an interesting time for, for I think, you and the magazine. You're coming up on 10 years with a magazine curated by, and the magazine is coming up on 20 years. But I wanted to start by going back with you. Were magazines important to you growing up? They were. I do remember collecting them from an early age and participating in making them at a certain point in my teenage years as well, because I did do some modeling at the time and I was very interested in fashion particularly. I even remember first issue of A Magazine that I found in a news agency in Sydney, which is funny to look back on now. Uh, what was your experience as a model like? How'd you get discovered? Did you have a good story? I suppose so. I was dating a photographer and they took photographs of me and the rest was history for a little while, but it also taught me a lot of things that I didn't want to be a part of in the industry. And it allowed me to access things that I didn't know about the industry, notably coming into contact with designers that I would later meet and work with through their clothes for the first time and kind of accessing the very far away idea of, of European fashion and high fashion that growing up in Sydney, Australia was not particularly evident at the time to me mm. before the internet and online shopping and all that sort of thing. Do you have one of those early early experiences? Like was there a, was there a designer that you met when you were modeling that ended up being an important relationship to you? I would say that it's more discovering their clothes than meeting them at the time as a model. I definitely remember putting on my first pair of Andamil Meester's trousers mm. in Sydney. Yeah. And, and that was very much a uh, an aha moment. And I was also growing up at the time when Hedy Slimane's Dior Homme was very revolutionary in menswear. So I copied the haircut, I copied the look, and I was actually singing in a band at the time. So getting up on stage was really important in a look and, uh, and trying to replicate all of those things that we were seeing coming from the Paris runways. Did you, I mean, was Europe always your, like on your horizon? I mean, when did you make the jump from coming from Australia? I made the decision halfway through my university degree, actually, and left Sydney University economics degree to uh, travel to London first. And I was working with a Sydney retailer, fantastic store that no longer exists called Asin. And they uh, helped me also to attend the first shows that I ever saw in, in Paris uh, as, as their assistant And I, while I was living in London and moved to Antwerp not long after that. It was actually through a designer in Sydney, Mick Eaton, who had a label called Material Boy, who introduced me to the A Magazine team. And uh, and that's how I began to work with them in Antwerp when I moved over in mid-2009. Were you, I mean, were you a big reader of the magazine when you first met the team? So I had a blurry idea of it, but having leafed through it in Sydney, 
many times and and bought it from this one news agency I mentioned earlier, I'm I definitely was aware of its existence and very curious to know more. But it's such an abstract concept that at the time understanding how it worked was of course a mystery to me and the idea of of having one designer at a magazine and it being all about them but not really about them was also very interesting because it's it's not an, a didactic publication. Mm-hmm. It's something that you have to dive into and, and understand and perhaps learn about a certain community or learn about a certain movement of culture or fashion or art that is being cited and explored in the pages. So as a as a 20 year old it was definitely something that i found quite um impenetrable i suppose but i was very curious at the same time wow you so you were 20 when you first when you first became involved with uh, a magazine i was wow. i was very young and uh, started as the digital editor in 2009 and um it was a little over a year later that i edited my first issue of the magazine with giambattista valli in 2010 this this strikes me as a as as a super unique situation because you're you're 20 years old. You just show up in London as a you know as a model, and then you're working in in journalism. But you couldn't have been doing it that long. And then you're there you're there for what like a year, and then all of a sudden you're helming this publication that, as you said, is super complex. has a has a really a pretty unique take on what a fashion magazine is and what it means. And also, it seems like it had this kind of like almost this life before a magazine where it was sort of a b c it seems like this it really had this uh this heartbeat to it what i mean how did you come to helmet why why was it you i think it's quite a complex question and it, the fact is yes it, it was called originally number a mm-hmm. which was the concept created by walter van berendonk in 2001 and uh, first guest edited by his partner Dirk van Sen at the time of a uh, large fashion festival in antwerp called landed galand where there was public exhibitions and installations throughout the city by Belgian designers and international designers like Comme des Garçons and Chanel. And the magazines that came after that were all edited by the first editorial team, designed by the same graphic designer, Paul Bowdens. And even with the rupture of one publisher taking over the project in 2005 and bringing out the Magella issue in that same year, mm-hmm. there was always this fluidity, which was difficult to manage and to harness because of this changing team I feeling this skeleton structure I suppose and so at the time that I arrived at the magazine this was still very much the case and it had gone through various editors uh, there was quite some links with the Modenasi which was the name of a fashion institution linked to the fashion museum in Antwerp mm-hmm. which is also associated with the Royal Academy and the fashion department Walter van Beredonk is still the director of and so it was very much encrusted in this Antwerp scene at the time and it had gone through an amazing foray of designers before I arrived and many would say the most cult and Some of them are now the most acclaimed designers. But I came to the magazine at a time when there had been a difficult issue that had been made with Parenza Schuller in New York. And Mm -hmm. the graphic design work had been shared between different teams. It had been quite a hard one to make. And in the end, there had been a rupture in the team in in Antwerp. And um, I was employed as I said, as a digital editor at the time and and assisting the uh, managing editor who was there, he actually left quite abruptly, leaving me with Giambattista and his team who had already signed on to do the issue. How far into the issue were you? I had accompanied him in the first weeks and months of its uh, conception, but with all the sort of dispute going on internally, I was just left to my own devices to continue working with Giambattista. And I was very lucky because it was a time when I just... I just moved to Paris out of Antwerp. I'd already decided to to make that leap from the small Belgian town to the big city, let's say. And Jean-Baptiste was somebody who really respected the history of the magazine, was really determined to make his mark on an issue that was very much his own trademark and, and all of the references that were important to him. He was really, really, really formative for me as a teacher in terms of all the references that he brought to the table, mm-hmm. all the photographers that he wanted me to source images from and commission, and even as far as the society characters that he put us in touch with for interviews and quotes and collages and all the beautiful things that we put inside his issue. So it was really a very big learning experience to make that first issue with Giambattista and I really went into it quite naively, 
and came out of it with a much better idea of the process and the, I guess, balance that I would now continue to keep uh, juggling today, which, which is balancing the wishes of a designer with the actual format of a magazine and the restrictions that that poses upon them, restrictions that they're not used to dealing with, whether they be the 3D and the 2D, whether they be the number of pages and all of the other things that come into making something that's finite and concrete and gets printed and never gets looked back at and can't be edited and can't be retouched and and changed and and doesn't just have its 15 minutes on the catwalk but kind of lives forever. It's a, you know it's it's a really surprising cover, the Jean-Baptiste Valley cover. It's a good story, actually, because that image of River Phoenix is from the early 1980s and was taken at his home by the photographer Michael Tai. So it is an archive image that was not taken, especially for the magazine. But it was so interesting that he made that choice. And it was also quite an about turn as we'd been looking at all of these really glamorous 70s images by Richard Abaddon and Irving mm-hmm. Penn and lots of hair and yeah. Italiana. And he kind of decided for something much more fragile and even and even masculine as well, because I think that it was a little bit more of a, a feeling of a self-portrait for him and his idea of male beauty for the cover, considering there was so much feminine presence inside, which I, f- I found very interesting. And, and you're not the only one to have been surprised by his his decision. Yeah, I you know it's it is it's this beautiful photograph. I'll I'll just say for for anyone listening, it's it's River Phoenix and he's uh, sort of tilting his head back and there's a uh, there's like a small bird that's sort of perched on his nose very lovingly. I had never seen this photograph before and it's kind of it's kind of perfect. It is. It's it's a really intimate gesture to to put that on the cover and um it really doesn't age it's so timeless and and really really not linked to fashion yet it still has the richness of the beautiful floral shirt that he's wearing the mm. the light is very soft it's it's really it's really special it seems like you know it, it was like a chaotic moment to take over this magazine and at the time did you were you like oh my god i'm just the only person here did you imagine that you'd spend your career uh building this thing and and it seems like it, in a sense, uh, really bringing some stability to the to the magazine. Well, I was very lucky that there was a sort of gatekeeper at the magazine at the time who has recently left us, and he was the second publisher of the magazine, Dirk van der Neyden. And Dirk was a mentor to me very much so in those early days. He is the husband of Linda Lopper, who was a very, very central figure in the Antwerp fashion scene in the 1980s and 90s with her role before Walter at the Fashion Academy and also as the curator of the Momu Fashion Museum. Mm-hmm. Dirk was a constant figure. He was the one that was uh, helping me in the back end of all the administration and distribution and all of those other important things for the magazine. So I think that I was very lucky to have him there to to teach me and to also to have access to Linda, who was also a wealth of, of great information. And, and they grew up with Dries Van Oten and Martin Margiela and, mm-hmm. and uh, she was a very important mentor to Raf Simmons as well. So there's all of that fantastic history there, as well as their connections to the art world, which were also very interesting and always pushed the fact that the magazine would be much more than a fashion magazine. And Though that there were some chaotic elements, I suppose, I, I was coming in off the back of a really fantastic project with Kranza Schuller, and their issue was celebrated at Pitti Uomo, the, uh, the trade fair in Florence with a fantastic party. And we had Chloe Sevigny on the cover. This was before <laughs> I actually edited the magazine, but I was there to, to celebrate it. And we had this really fantastic event where they had an ins- installation by Heim Steinbach in this palazzo. They had uh, Caleb Lindsay's artworks outside like like portraits on easels except they were sort of like trans photography which was quite radical at, at the time they had uh, the performer Kembra Fowler flown out from New York and she dressed up in all of her pink body paint and had all these amazing ballerinas dressed like her forming at the at the event and so this all fascinated me to see like all the New York downtown cool kids coming through to Florence with, yeah with Jack and Lazaro to <laughs> yeah. to celebrate them as the guest designers in Florence. And there I was sort of thrown into the middle of it thinking, what's going on? I don't know what this is, but it's really cool. And I think from that moment onwards, I knew how the cultural conversations that could be created with this publication were so 
varied and so dynamic and that we could continue making these kinds of uh, these kinds of things happen. So it just felt very natural to keep going. And here I am nearly 11 years later and and still enjoying it very much, even though it's changed enormously. Was Rodarte the first designer designers? Was that the first issue that, that where you chose the, the curator? Yes, absolutely. Why do you choose Rodarte? That was a very interesting time for Rodarte. Uh, we worked with them in 2011. And I think that it was at a time when Kate and Laura were on an amazing role of collections that were very much based in their childhood, their sense of place, their obsessions with Los Angeles and greater California. And there were a lot of very cinematic things happening as well in in their work. And it was also at a time when um, they were bringing a romance and a sense of the handmade to fashion that was not so present at the time. If you think about what they brought into the conversation, then it was predating Alessandra Michele's Gucci. Mm -hmm. It was a very exuberant and very colorful and vintage inspired world mm-hmm. and they were so different because there was such a an anomaly these two sisters living at home in Pasadena yeah. hand sewing these, these incredible gowns and if you remember those those early collections with the handmade cardigans and the knitted leggings and all of those grunge pieces as well it was like this amazing dichotomy that they were bringing to the New York scene so they were very, very exciting, and and uh, they were also very excited to work with us, too. Yeah, I mean, it's probably the first time you'd had this big California push, right? I mean, I remember that was, you know, I mean, I was just talking about, like, what is what does American fashion feel like to me? It, it, it always did feel like um, a little punk, a little grunge. It felt like New York, and I do remember Rodarte coming on the scene and... and all of a sudden, I was like, "Oh my God, the other this whole other coast!" And I feel like that's a a, a part of American fashion that has really uh, grown a lot in the past ten years. Absolutely, and I think they also had a very and have a very strong awareness of the link between fashion and cinema and, and Hollywood in particular. And they have continued that line of of thought in the way that they now photograph their lookbooks on different actresses who are their friends, mm-hmm. and they have always kind of honored that. Hollywood tradition uh, and the idea of the silver screen. They made their own film later on. They've done other costumes for film and and uh, and dance as well. So the idea of of LA and California, as I said, was the entire crux of their of their issue. And we did some some great projects with them. I think it was so fun to put the uh, extinct California grizzly bear on the cover mm-hmm. and to work with a National Geographic writer to um, sort of unpack the extinction of that of that animal. And then we work with a lot of references from things like Alice in Wonderland and the Ruby Slippers. We were looking at Andrew Wyatt's paintings as well. Mm-hmm. And then all, all these sort of geeky things that the girls love as well, like the Garbage Pail Kids cards, which are like the weird, grotesque version of Cabbage Patch Kids. And we had a great interview with uh, George Lucas inside as well. But uh, we also had an interview with the founder of Buffy, mm-hmm. the Vampire Slayer. Yeah. So all of their all of their kind of geeky '90s uh, TV references came out as well in there, and uh, we did a great shoot with uh, the late David Armstrong, who photographed uh, Kirsten Dunst at his brownstone in Brooklyn. Mm. It's one of the la- the last shoots that he did before his death mm. in their beautiful collection that was inspired by um, Terrence Malick's films and um, all of those beautiful uh, images that they made of the wheat fields and the and the blue skies digital printed onto the dresses. How do you go about deciding who's going to be uh, who's going to curate the magazine? How do you go about choosing the designer that that you that you reach out to? It's a funny one because you know we're always faced with this idea of you know who will do the next issue or the one after that, and the idea of all these great minds in in the industry, and but also a dwindling number of those of those names perhaps. But um, what's interesting, I think, is that the clothes and the, and the world don't always entirely go hand in hand. Yeah. Or there might be a designer that makes amazing clothes, but just doesn't really have the universe that we need to make a magazine, which is sometimes the case, too. And I think that there needs to be a sort of a level of really, really assertive persistence and dedication to an aesthetic or to a community from the designer's point of view before we're able to say, 
okay, this is really the kind of person that we can work with. Because I even hesitate to think that even some of the best and greatest couturiers of the 20th century would not have been entirely right to make the magazine because their focus on making clothes was so strong that it kind of ate up anything else. Mm. And it's just like, would it be interesting just to do a magazine on a great tailor? I'm not so sure, unless they brought some sort of incredible tradition of other worlds into their headspace. So it's always a funny balance of saying, how do the clothes and the person add up and and how does their community and their universe add up to add up to a really interesting possibility? Yeah, it's that line between, you know, almost a, a, a technician, you know, someone who makes really beautiful clothes and and someone who thinks and about dreamer. yeah, and, and someone who thinks about what does clothing mean? Yeah, I think it's something that I wanted to that I sort of touched on about. I think there's a certain risk of working with someone at a certain time and getting them too late in their career, where in a way everybody knows their stories already, yeah. so yeah. they also know who the people that they're going to choose to do something. There's not going to be anything surprising. Whereas I think we've got to be a little bit on the fringe still, and sometimes take a chance. I mean. We worked with Ricardo Tishi at the very beginning of his career at Givenchy. Yeah. Same with Kim at Dior, even though he'd already spent all that time at Vuitton. Um, it was like right at the start of his Dior tenure. Same with Alessandro Michele. There are just different times in, in people's careers where it makes sense to work with them and we have to make those decisions and it's what keeps it dynamic and alive. So one of the one of the things that's, that's kind of amazing about A Magazine, as we've talked about, is that it's invented and reinvented every time. You know, it's constantly a thing that is in flux. So I just want to talk about the process a little bit. You know, like you weren't the editor-in-chief of another magazine before coming here. You know, you weren't, correct me if I'm wrong, but it seems like you weren't taking a lot of the typical ways of working editorially and, and bringing that experience here. So what are your first steps? How do you begin building that relationship and guiding them? For me, it's important to be able to help designers to translate many things that for them are aesthetic and and visual into a cohesive document. And that's something that all the team try and do. And and we are very conscious of guiding designers into that sort of 360 storytelling that that a magazine should be. And Mm -hmm. and some are naturally better than, than others at that anyway. And some come with a very, very strong idea of what the entire thing will be and what the theme will be and others need various hand-holding measures along the way to connect people in the right way and and to think of how they can work with contributors and their friends and what this person should do that they're not used to doing for example and how to coax interesting stories out of people that might be quite present on the scene already for example and also even how to properly tell the stories of obscure people out of context, perhaps even. Mm -hmm. So um, it's really a a very special position. And and we always think of it as a sort of mediation and a diplomatic role, because in the end, it's not always our point of view that is king. And it's not my point of view that is the most important one. What's important is that we create the the magazine that, that, that best represents the designers. And in doing so, that means compromising. It also means completely understanding what they want and what they'd like to express and helping them understand it if in case at any point there are things that are blocked or that don't seem to make sense but need to be in the magazine or you know because there's always going to be so many people that that come to mind when a designer is given this blank page Mm -hmm. and this uh, blank canvas so um, it really is about creating this jigsaw puzzle that that in the end uh, has all the pieces fitting together. And so, yes, it's, it is very much bucking the, uh, the conventional way of, of making a magazine and, and uh, working with, you know, the same photographers and, and working with the same contributors to look at the state of an industry at a certain moment in time. In a way, we're actually doing the opposite because we really do want the magazine to live beyond the season in which it's created. So yeah. we're looking at working with archives from the designer. We're looking at working with existing texts and images and artworks. We're looking at weaving in stories for the future as well. I mean, that's something that we have been working on in the past, I would say, five or six years it's, is to say to the designers, hey, like, what is there that you can put in the magazine that might be a part of your world in the next year or so? What, what do you have coming out next? What, where are you guys going? What's something that you haven't already explored that you'd like to explore? Who's that friend or that hero that you've never done anything with and you'd like to, to do something with. I think that we're very much aspiring to reach very, very 
different talents and also to reach very different industries and, and disciplines. So I think we're there to push the designer to think outside their own box as well. Was there someone you were really surprised by, like by their approach or by what they wanted to put in there or, their, or the way of working with them? I think everybody's surprising in their own way and they can also show their true colors in, in different ways through the process. There are certain people that you expect to be really decisive or black and white who are in fact open to listen more than you more than you might have expected. Other people will be in a way very, very uh, direct and know exactly what they want and have no, no compromises in, in terms of layouts and in terms of the finished product. And so it's, it's interesting to see how those things play out in the course of the six or nine months, sometimes even a year that we're making mm. a magazine with them. Over the course of this time, I mean, I've seen so many different ways of putting a magazine together that I don't even think there is a right way anymore. I think that some people come with quite radical concepts and that's surprising in, in itself. I remember making an issue with Stephen Jones, the milliner from London, mm -hmm. and Stephen wanted to dedicate his issue entirely to the art of illustration. So in essence, his magazine was not about photography and it was... It was not about the photographic image. It was about how to represent fashion and the and the the accent of fashion, which is what he calls a hat, as a magazine. So that was really really interesting. And it's it's funny how valid that is now when you see Italian Vogue doing illustrated covers a couple of months ago, and and other people also having to turn back to the art of illustration because they can't put photo shoots on during the pandemic. Doing that with with him in. Uh, you know, six years ago, seven years ago was was pretty radical at the time. And for me, that was definitely a surprising one to work on. Yeah. I mean, did you have a sense? Was that was that completely out of the blue that he was like, I want to do this about illustration? It was. Yeah. I mean, you, as, as someone who works with so many different designers and has for so long and has, has sort of been a part of their creative process for so long, he could have gone in many different directions, I suppose. And he's also his links to the punk scene and all the Blitz kids in London were also very important to him. But he he found a way of translating all of that into this illustrated issue. It was it was surprising and in a way not surprising at the same time when you think of how important illustration is to to fashion and to the the creative process. And he was pulling out faxes between himself and Mark Jacobs and Ray Kawakubo all these kind of earlier ways of, of designing that are not forgotten, but are at least uh, have, have evolved since then, showing the reader the way that many of these really iconic collections came to life. Yeah, I mean, there is something kind of great about illustration, right? Because, I, I, you know, I think that illustration is, is almost a little bit, um, has been almost overtaken by like the concept of the mood board, you know, which is obviously also, in, you know, super interesting. And, and I mean, the magazine in, in a lot of ways is a testament to that kind of way of dealing with imagery. It's very true. I think that the mood board element is something that we're very embracing of and wary of at the same time, because I think that it has entered so much into the zeitgeist, let's say, of any creative process these days is make a mood board and, and reference this and reference that and put them all together and shake it and see what happens. Um, it remains important, but it also is something we need to be careful of in terms of making the magazine just a mood book. Yeah, and of course, just yeah. A mood board. And, you know, we've had photographs of mood boards in our issue with Haider Ackerman and with Jun Takahashi and 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 recently right Pier, Pier Paolo and then Pier Paolo's as well as a very uh very elevated version of that because <laughs> what he does what he does with his collections is he creates these black cahiers that he does not just build up before a show it's something that's that's kind of like this never-ending accumulation of of material and it involves the artworks that he's inspired by before the show. It involves the cocky sketches of the of the dresses. He puts the invitations to the show inside. He puts the musical track list in. He puts the seating plan. I mean, it's got all of these different elements of of the fashion show in it. And in a way, he he takes takes them all and and revisits them after the show um, through the season. He goes back to them and and shows his teams the various collections when they're making a new one. So it's, it's interesting to see to what level he meticulously has perfected something that other people do digitally or on a pin board and throw away and start again. And he makes these kind of these beautifully preserved documents and, 
he puts transparent papers and and glossy photo prints and fabrics and all sorts of things inside. So that's a that's a really incredible um, process to to have uh, been privy to. And we had uh, the American photographer Joel Mayerowitz photograph those books for us after having seen his incredible still life work in the ateliers of Cezanne and uh, and Mirandi when he photographed all the very various objects in their art studios. So that was kind of a reference for us for those photographs. But yeah, the mood board for us is definitely a um, a peril. And what we like to think is that if we're going to enter into that kind of editorial, that everything is backed up with all of the proper referencing and a deeper study of the importance of those images and also a a really clear way of creating a dynamic of juxtaposition and harmony wherein those images actually say something to each other and that the, uh, you know, the times that they were created and the circumstances in which they were created add something to, to the magazine because it's not a Tumblr account. I guess the way I think about the mood board is that and I certainly feel this with with a magazine is that there there almost feels like there's a you know a, a tactile quality to the way that the images are being assembled and used. You know, I mean, the tactile uh, component is very interesting. You're right. I'd even go back to Stephen to illustrate that again because at the time we were working with an art director in Antwerp, Madeleine Wermenbol, mm-hmm. who worked also herself for the original art director Paul. She invited us and welcomed us in into her studio in Antwerp. And I remember Stephen wanted not only to print out all the pages of the magazine, which is often something the designer wants to do, of course, to see the physicality of the proofs and yeah. and the idea of, of the order of the pages. But being a um, an eco-warrior, he, he printed them out really, really small. <laughs> and we cut them all up and put them on the floor. And the two of us were basically sitting there with a magnifying glass, um, rearranging all of the pages together on this big concrete studio floor in Antwerp it was really endearing and it was so much fun and it was it really made me feel like I was making something physical and it's so inspiring to to see those moments when a designer does get busy with their hands and apply that to the printed project and it could be the way we put together Kim Jones's cover with uh, Peter Phillips the makeup artist who was cutting up scans of Kim's favorite GABA records and using them as masks for the faces of the models and just you know translating something super analog into into what is essentially going to be a digital image there's all these kinds of little tricks like that that are so uh so tactile as you said and and it, it goes further into the uh into the actual production of the magazine because you know we're also proposing to them to choose the paper to choose the treatments on the cover to decide if something is going to be embossed or if it's going to be foiled or if it's going to be covered with a special color and a, and a special ink. I remember um, Tom Brown's issue is a very particular one too because he has a, uh, a fabric effect cover that's entirely white with a black shiny foil over the top of the A and the title. And it's very, very simple. And the touch that's really Tom there is that he actually sent us uh, the uh, tricolor ribbon uh, the blue, white, and and red ribbon that's mm-hmm. his uh, signature for his brand, and we used that as a bookmark. So there was this very sort of blank magazine that has uh, his touch as a 3D element. Did did he, right from the start, know he was going to do a black and white publication? Yeah, absolutely. It was the period when he was doing all of these collections around the idea of death and mourning. Um, he did these great funeral collections for men and women with all sorts of p- performance elements included in the shows as he always does these very long theatrical mm-hmm. fashion shows and so yeah he really wanted the whole concept to be black and white and that manifested in so many different ways inside from I mean the way that people reference black and white photography and the shoots that they did to I remember Martha Stewart's fantastic recipes that she made she made the um the menu for her own funeral oh my god what do you and, uh, <laughs> do? You remember what she what she would have served at her funeral? It was all black and white ingredients and black and white food. So there was vanilla ice cream, ice cream with chocolate sauce. There was oh oysters. <laughs> That's crazy. And all of these, uh, yeah, sort of uh, dark ideas uh, in that issue, but um, but very very beautiful. Dark, um, dark with a bit was, of a flourish. Yes, there was definitely marbled eggs as well. If I remember, a lot of fun. So can I ask you, you know, I'm curious, like the, you know, a magazine really, they didn't really hold anything back when they started. I mean, the, the, you know, the first four issues, I can't think of 
a more interesting, indicative group of people. I mean, it was, you know, the first issue, Maison Martin Margiela, Yoji Yamamoto, Haider Ackerman, and Jun Takahashi shows up in full force. I guess I'm curious, like, of, of these issues that that came before your time, you know, these processes that you that you weren't privy to, is there an issue that, that is sort of kind of keeps you up night or, or, or that you're really intrigued by or have questions about? I think that those early issues are interesting for many reasons. I would start by saying that through the history of the magazine, there has been various intimacies that came into play that allowed those issues to happen. And I would say that base of Antwerp and the uh, links to the Antwerp fashion scene mm-hmm. was was very important at that time. And it has since waned, both with the relevance of that city as a fashion capital and just with time and and our move to Paris as well. I think that uh, the Maison Martin Margiela's issue has a very cult place in avant-garde fashion publishing because it was an example of a very, very in-depth study or window into this brand that was anonymous and of a designer who didn't give interviews, who was not photographed and who, like I say, inflicted, but enforced these uh, these very strict rules on all of his staff to wear white lab coats, to be also as anonymous as himself, mm. to act as a, as a collective. And this magazine was like the bride stripped bear. I mean, it was the the idea of all of these things kind of being dismantled and showing all of the collaborators that he worked with, designers, photographers, studio staff, even his his PR who was heavily involved and actually giving them all a voice and a name and all the while not actually giving that to himself. And so I think it's really intriguing for all of those reasons. And, uh, you know, it was this iconic white cover with the paint swatches to create the shape of the A. It was actually a very simple magazine in terms of its production value. It doesn't have any bells and whistles. In in fact, the very, very first issue is, is much more radical than number A by Dirk Van Sen because it was actually created with no cover. It's uh, invisible bound. Hmm. And it was uh, sheathed in plastic with a red A on the plastic. And the very first page is actually the contents page. So I would consider that issue even more um, radical in that sense. But but Martin's is uh, is very special. And it was it's also towards the end of his time at the house. I mean, he only had four or five years longer at, at the house before he left. And it was subsequently taken over by the design team and then later on John Galliano. So this is a really a, a piece of fashion history in itself why why do you think he agreed to do it i mean if like do you know how he was approached i mean what he did have this this kind of anonymity and and as you said this this issue is something that really kind of severs that so do you have a sense of why why this why he wanted to do this this new magazine he they mean you know like it's the first one so i'm thinking how was he approached and how how was he convinced to do this project well, the relationship between him and the editors at the time of the magazine, uh, as well as the links to Linda Lopa and, mm-hmm. and her husband, Dirk, who was, was, has, was just coming on board as the publisher at the time, I think those actually created a, a really comfortable and intimate microcosm for the magazine to be made at that time. And it was very much before the way fashion was gripped by the internet and by social media as well. So I think it's really important to think of the context of 2004 when we're looking at a question like this and the way that brands didn't create behind-the-scenes content then as they do now. Mm -hmm. And it's also why our job is so much more challenging today than it may have been then for different reasons. I think that all of the reasons that a magazine with someone like him would not happen now, would not be as relevant now because of all all of this, uh, for want of a better word, content that is created every month by brands was not being done then. That's why this was so, in a way, easy and relevant and important to do. I mean, the magazine was created by faxing letters to people and many of those letters appear in its pages mm. um, and the process is really shown at the beginning of each section with with that letter to to each contributor and I think that that sort of DIY kind of actionist way of of creating is is very Martin and it's something that we've kind of held held on to it in, in various stages of of later issues and and sort of showing the process of of making the magazine is uh, is important. So yeah, I think that it was a safe place at the time for him, and and also kind of revolutionary too. Yeah, I mean, you know, I, I I haven't I haven't flipped through all the pages of that first issue. I'm sure it's very very hard to find, 
But, uh, you know, but there is this one story I saw online where Margiela shows you how to make a sweater out of your socks. And it's sort of like this very tactile, simple thing. And I'm like, I just love that. That's definitely a, um, one of the few things where it's kind of attributed to him and to uh, his uh, design team. And, and for sure, it's one of the inner workings of a house and, and a house that was so unconventional in terms of the way it treated clothing and deconstructing clothing. And I think it's probably one of the m- more straightforward things inside the issue. A lot of the other contributions are very abstract and they do treat clothing in, in the context of, of art photography. Mm. They disregard clothing entirely to look at music playlists. There are all sorts of different things that definitely challenge the idea of a fashion I suppose I, I want to bring this all together, uh, you know, up to the up to the present day. And I want to finish by talking about the newest issue of A Magazine. This one is curated by Lucy and Luke Meyer, the co-creative directors of Jill Sonder. How did you approach them? Why, why, why did you uh, think of them to do an issue? Luke and Lucy have been on our radar for some time. And uh, personally, I had met them much earlier on than when they began at Jill Sander in 2017. Uh, Luke has the label OAMC as well that he co-founded in 2013. And I came into contact with him very early on to write about his work for Vogue at the time. And I found him and his world very interesting. And and it was also something that I found was quite new in the world of menswear. And it was it was following a, a wave of the sort of, let's say, the breaking down of the barriers between uh, formal and streetwear mm. and doing it in a very authentic way. I, I remember seeing the way he was inspired by mountaineering and, and very local concepts from his own life and uh, the places he grew up at the time and linking that to charity work as well, which I, thought, which I found interesting and and I met Lucy when she was at Christian Dior in the interim period between uh, Raf Simmons's tenure and uh, the time that Maria Grazia began. She was working with Serge Ruffieux on the collections together as the head, head of design. And so I'd followed their career for um, quite some years before they actually showed anything together. I think that as a, as a magazine, we are always looking to sort of swing the compass backwards and forwards towards different kinds of aesthetics. And we're always looking at the longer term when we think of designers that can do things in the future. And Luke and Lucy have really established themselves at Jill Sander with this kind of very natural and warm idea of minimalism and idea of that brand, which has many connotations from the past of being severe and cold and sort of uh, exclusive and, uh, and dry. And I think that we've always looked at what they do as respecting that house, but also opening it up in a way and shaking off some of those ideas and and sort of delving into craft and and looking at their own uh, inspirations from a very pared back, very beautiful and very um, organic idea of, of 20th century culture photography, music, landscapes, all sorts of different things that are clearly important to them. And you see in the clothes, in the way that they presented the clothes, in, in warehouses with, with plants growing out of them, the floors and in raw spaces in Paris. They, they have something that's, yeah, that's very unfinished. And I think after recent issues that we've done with people like Kim Jones and, and Pierre Paolo and, and even Simone Rocha, I think it's not only interesting to think of the clothes, but it's also interesting to think of the typologies of people that we're working with, where they come from, if they're working alone, or if they are, as in this case, a duo. And I think that we were also very attracted by this idea of a, of a married couple mm. working together at the head of a label. And so there's, there's all these kind of dualities that come out from them that are, are really intriguing. And I think that all of that led us to, to inviting them last year to, to do the magazine. And they said yes very quickly. How did they approach it, you know, thematically? I mean, what was the early concept or, or what was their first, intu- you know, their kind of intuition on where to, where to go with this? Well, I must admit, we've never received a more succinct and well-thought-out proposal <laughs> for an issue than we got from Luke and Lucy, which was a real gift. And... They set things out in a very, very clear and designed document about the idea of approaching the magazine with the concept of the juxtaposition and the and the crossroads between human nature and mother nature. And this is something that they did not waver from at all in the creative process. Of course, there was 
a long list of names that was whittled down to a smaller concentration of people mm. that they wanted to to put inside and ideas to put inside, you know, depending on all the different factors that come into production. You know, we were able to concentrate on a, I would, I would say a handful, but it was much more than a handful of productions with them to make new content and also to source existing content and um, stories and images and uh, texts from, from academics and from institutions and to create, yeah, the, the magazine that they wanted to do. You're talking about this idea of a kind of warm minimalism. And, you know, there's there is so much that I connect with in this issue that that feels like that, you know, uh, everything from this story on on Nakashima, you know, an in, in interview with Min Nakashima to, yeah. you know, to John Pawson, who I think actually is a perfect sort of symbol of warm minimalism, you know, that that kind of almost chapel that he showed in the middle of the woods that's made out of those logs and a single material. I mean, I can't think of a, of a better example of a warm, of like a, a statement like that that is so pure, but also so, so natural. John was a really uh, evident choice for them because he's actually been redoing Jill Sanders' boutiques for, for Lucy and Luke in the past uh, year or so. So um, he was someone that we felt was really integral to the spatial vision of the brand and of, of what they're about. So he was definitely one of the first people that we asked for. And then um, Mira Nakashima as well, because what's interesting as well about Lucy and Luke is, is the age group that they belong to. And, and of course, will be many of the designers that we, we work with in the future is that they're very aware and connected individuals who have been able to create their own aesthetic and lifestyle around all sorts of talents and and uh, let's say other design other designers in in the world of interior design and industrial design and and uh, other disciplines that they admire and to have access to those things for example uh, Nakashima is of course one of the the greats of American furniture design and and it just so happens that Lucy and Luke had ordered a table to be made by the workshops so for us that's so interesting because there's a there's a real link with their interest in, in in a beautiful object of design and so the images that we have in the in the magazine that accompany that interview with with George Nakashima's daughter um, are actually of the table that uh, Lucy and Luke will be having delivered to their Milan home hmm. you know there is such an amazing connection between design and fashion and it's so it's always kind of a treat to see fashion designers thinking about things that that aren't clothing you know and that that's actually one of the things that's so great about this magazine is that I think it really uh, affords people the chance to contextualize their work in in a in a way that goes beyond clothing, you know, beyond what that is. Because I I think most designers, once they hit the level of this group that you've assembled, you know, I think how they work conceptually goes so much so far beyond any given piece of clothing. Absolutely, I think I think what's really great as well is that we're not in this period where people can pretend to be purely self-referential anymore either and also we can't pretend that everybody is going to be as entirely unconventional and avant-garde as a Martin Margiela who is the kind of person that comes around you know once in a generation or even once in a century and I think that what's great is that there's an honesty with Luke and Lucy to expose the things that came before them and the things that they are personally reverential to and also to show that those things don't come necessarily from fashion but come from other other areas that they are themselves consumers of. I think since the beginning of, of fashion as we know it there's been this amazing um, exchange between fashion designers and artists and photographers and furniture designers and decorators and all these other disciplines that feed into the aesthetic realm. And I think that today designers recognize that more than ever. And the pages of a magazine like this allow us to see who those people are in a way that's not a picture of a store. It's not a still life of a, of a garment with a piece of furniture. I mean, it's, it's much more direct to the inspiration of those people rather than the exact sort of commercial crossroads where they actually in, in inevitably uh, interact on a business level. Dan, the, the, the last thing I want to ask you, you know, obviously we're talking at, at such a strange time uh, for the world and, you know, and, and, and Luke and Lucy, they acknowledge this and I think in a lot of ways with their issue and, and it feels very, very prescient. But I, I guess I, I want to ask you, looking forward at this moment that feels like a break, how does how does a magazine stay vital what pushes you forward what do you think is the next step for for your industry and a magazine specifically i think that keeping our title and keeping magazine titles vital 
at the moment is going to be very, very pressing and it's going to be something that we're going to have to work very hard on. And there's no no one answer to that. I think that right now and more than ever, we need to consider the object thing of beauty and something that will attract a reader to find out more than what they can see on the internet. Mm. I've quoted this before, but I, I remember Kim Jones telling me once that the problem with the internet is that you can't see what's on the next page. Mm. And the problem with internet searching is, is exactly that. Magazines fall outside of the algorithm. What we're able to do is to create these linear stories, these non-linear stories as well, but to, to create capsules within capsules and that's something that the internet is not so good at because it's really about numbers, it's about keywords, it's about all of these very direct ways at arriving at information. And I think that the wandering and the meandering way that fashion magazines and art magazines and visual culture stimulation works is that there will always be the name of the designer on the cover. It's a signifier for the outside world as to what they might find on the inside. But the real test is what they can compose inside and how they can be present without being too present, how they can corral other people, whether they're big names or not, into telling really amazing stories and creating beautiful images and reminding us of beautiful images from the past and intertwining all of these different uh, modules, let's say. I think it's important that when you pick up a magazine that it feels good, that it's comfortable to read. As a consumer myself, the idea of the six or 700 page fashion magazine is not appealing to me. <laughs> we have a limit of how many pages and how big our magazine is for a reason because it gives a defining frame for, for what can be said at a certain point in time and also of the physicality of the, of the object. Yeah. Um, and I think all that's super important now. And if we can also involve an environmental element into it as well, all the better, um, because the fact is we're still printing paper, so we're cutting down trees. One of the good things of the internet is the idea that we don't have to do that as much in our, in our daily lives. But that's why it's all the more important, I think, that this, the way that we do use these trees and this paper is uh, potent and is worth keeping. So we don't want people to be throwing the magazine out. We want them to be keeping it on their bookshelf. We want it to be sitting next to the art books and the photo books and to be a, a point of conversation when somebody enters in a room and, and wants to know, you know what that magazine is with the California grizzly bear on the cover <laughs> or so happens the Jill Sander issue is covered in uh, flowers and it, it's actually a 3D scan of a Japanese washi paper with pressed flowers and it's very, very lifelike and it looks like it's really pressed flower, but it's it's actually just this new scanning technique. So we might not have the, the flashiest cover with a celebrity on it or, you know, lots of titles and and uh, and models and, and clothes, but I think that sort of gives it the timeless quality that, that all of our issues have had since the beginning. Dan, thank you so much. My pleasure. I want to thank Dan Tolley and the whole team at A Magazine, as well as Lucy and Luke Meyer for putting together such a beautiful, timely issue. You can get your copy online at amagazinecuratedby.com. As I said at the beginning of the show, the website is also a really amazing place to browse the archive of past issues, many of which we talked about on the show. Our show is produced by Sarah Levine. Our music is by Jack and Eliza. We'll be back with another conversation next week. And in the meantime, you can visit us on Instagram at image.culture, or you can visit me at william.jess.laird. Bye-bye.